0: Money is what's called fungible. This dollar in my left hand does the same thing as the dollar in my right hand. But money isn't really fungible in the sense that it's not the same for everyone. So if you're just starting your career as an artist, you've got big money worries. The whole focal point of your life is getting money. Then if you get lucky and you make more money, that becomes less of a concern. Maybe someday you get up to be a really successful novelist or visual artist like Jeff Koons or something, and then all of a sudden you're running a big business. And the interplay between money and art is of great fascination to me.
1: Everybody. My guest today is Ken Miller. He went to Yale where he studied Chinese studies, then he went to a little outfit called Harvard Law. He was a vice chair of Merrill Lynch Credit Suisse, a senior advisor at Teneo Holdings, and is currently the president and CEO of Ken Miller Capital. So I think it's safe to say he is unlike any guest we've had on the podcast so far. And the book Ken chose today is... The Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoet by David Mitchell, smash hit of 2004, Man Booker Prize winner of 2005, an all-around great book, an amazing work of historical fiction, accurate in every detail, I guess. It's not like I really am an expert in that period, but it seemed like it would be very accurate. There were a lot of details that were really beautiful and made you feel like you were in Dejima. We'll get into where Dejima was and why Dejima was there. So welcome Ken Miller. And I'll start with the first question I usually ask everyone, which is why did you pick this book?
0: You mentioned that little outfit where I was a senior advisor. I once had a internal seminar I conducted about reading fiction because so many people in the world of finance don't do it. Yes, you can see movies, but there's something about losing yourself in a work of fiction that basically allows you to lead more than one life. The great thing, as you touched on with David Mitchell's Thousand Autumns of Jacob DeZoot, is that he takes you back to the turn of the 18th century, 1799, and all of a sudden, You're working for the Dutch East India Company in a world that you didn't know anything about. And I thought about other books that take you outside of yourself, like Ferrante's series that allows you to become a young girl growing up in Naples. I thought about Murakami's current realism that allows you to be a young Japanese person. And then Amrit Tolles, who, like Mitchell, is so protean in his subject. He'll move from beautiful young woman trying to make her way in Manhattan in Rules of Stability to being a gentleman in Moscow. Other books I love, Hesh Keston's, The Iron Will of Shushan Katz. You can be a Jewish gangster. Sebastian Fox. You can be in the trenches of World War I and so forth. And I think especially for business people, fiction reminds you that there are other things in life besides making money.
1: So this book is about an honest man in a nest of vipers, essentially. Jacob Desot comes to Tajima, which is a trading post off of the city of Nagasaki. The Dutch are not allowed on the mainland of Japan, but they are allowed on this little atoll that the Japanese made them in order to trade. It's the Dutch East India Company, which is the Amazon of the 1700s. It's the biggest thing going, I think, at that time, international. Jacob DeZoot comes to Dejima as an honest guy who's really just trying to do the best, trying to earn enough money so that he can marry the woman of his dreams. And he walks into this super corrupt company where from the head to the tail, everybody's taking graft, everybody's taking a little piece, which I think is probably inevitable when you're trying to run an empire across 12,000 miles with letters that take years to travel. But he, throughout the book, manages to be the only honest man in this whole situation. Did something about that resonate to you?
0: Honestly, when I read a novel, the story is important, but I'm mainly interested in The writing. But yes, the story, so staying on the story, I didn't think the story focused on this guy's honesty. The woman that he was in love with before he left Holland, he wasn't permitted to marry until he went and made some money. So I guess her father or uncle or somebody said, here, I'll get you a job with the Dutch East India Company, go make some money and then come back and you can marry this woman you're in love with. Well, Whilst there, he fell in love with a Japanese midwife, an unusually well-educated Japanese woman who came from a very well-placed father. He had his fantasies about going back and marrying this Dutch woman, but his honesty caused him to fall afoul of the leader of the Dutch expedition, as a result of which he, was not permitted to get on the ship going back to Holland. So he basically was condemned for at least five more years than he planned in a Japan that was paranoid about foreigners.
1: And then the Dutch East India Company, by the end of the book, dissolves. This is historically accurate, right?
0: Yes. In the course of the book, there are many plots and subplots. His love affair, or his would-be love affair, with this woman, Morito Ayubagawa, It's one of those loves that is never meant to be, but it causes him to participate in many an adventure attempting to further the liaison.
1: I thought that Miss Ibagawa, she was a beautiful character, and I really loved the book, and maybe I'm making this up, but it felt like the metaphor of the Japanese woman who had a burn on her face, but was intriguing, but was fundamentally flawed and completely different from him, that the metaphor between... His relationship with her and the Dutch's relationship with Japan in general was almost a little heavy for me. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who was picking that up, but it seemed like all of Europe viewed Japan in exactly the same way that he viewed Miss Aibagawa, that not a wife, but so intriguing, and I just need to know more about her. And then it's his involvement with her that is ultimately her undoing, or at least the undoing of the life that she had and led her to sort of a new life, which is exactly what happened to Japan.
0: I think her undoing was when her stepfather died and her mother, in fact, sold her to this mysterious priest-type chap who was running a monastery in a deserted location. It turns out, as the plot unfolds, not to be a spoiler, there's something nefarious going on in that monastery. She was brought in to be a midwife. Let's just say that these nuns, were having a surprising amount of babies. So <laughs> she was needed for that function.
1: That was my favorite part of the book. So the book is structured as basically five novellas. It sort of felt like each one was kind of discreet or could have been, and they all tied together. The second one was this whole situation with the monastery and the secretive religious order that was living there. And I just thought that was so creative, and it was just so amazing to come after... You know, the first part of the book is descriptions of life in a port town, which is interesting. But then the second part of the book was just a completely different. It's almost a sci-fi twist on the whole thing. It's really amazing.
0: Well, what's well, also amazing. I talked about how different his novels are one from the other compared him to Hammer Tolls in that regard. I mean, he's written some wildly different novels. I thought I was... It's completely different from this book. He obviously does a lot of research, and he writes so evocatively, so well. His little list, here's a quote I made a note of. In the palanquin's grill, he smells steam rice, sewage, incense, lemons, sawdust, yeast, and rotting seaweed. He glimpses gnarled old women, hot monks, unmarried girls with blackened teeth. You feel like you're there in a different time in a completely foreign culture. And he does it effortlessly, often inserting into dialogue references to smells and sounds that bring you back into the moment. He's good at that.
1: So one of the things that I thought you would have some insight into is the interpreters play such a big part in this story. There's a guild of interpreters. They're a professional class that interpret from Dutch to Japanese and vice versa, and they're needed and a party to every transaction. I've worked with an interpreter in a situation where I'm on stage speaking to an audience that doesn't speak my language, but the stakes are pretty low. I'm just trying to entertain them or tell them about a piece of music. But have you worked with an interpreter doing business in foreign places before? Because I know you did some business in Asia, presumably.
0: I taught at Peking University, and I spent a lot of time in China. And I do speak the language, but I don't speak it well enough to do business in Chinese. So... I've been in many a meeting with an interpreter, and there are two ways to do it, as you know. You can do it sequentially, or you can do it simultaneously. But as you say, these interpreters were what made any kind of communication possible. And in fact, one of the interpreters is Jacob Dessout's rival for the young Orito Aibagawa. I'm fascinated with language. It's so much fun to see how the Japanese are pronouncing Western words. In real life, I think Mitchell is married to a Japanese, and I was pretty sure that he knew the language when I read the book. Language is the key to the culture, which is why the shogun didn't want them learning Japanese. These interpreters are in a very powerful position, but if they take liberties with it, they risk their lives. He was a young man, and he wanted to accumulate enough money so that he could get married back in Holland. But then he became fascinated with the whole translation thing. And because the woman he was interested in, he thought was in danger, he had to learn the Japanese language in order to rush to her rescue. In a strange way, Mitchell's book is a very traditional novel. damsel in Distress, The Love That Is Not To Be, But it's also so complex and so beautifully written that one remembers
1: it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's very traditional and there's some twists in the plot that you definitely don't see coming. And there's some things in there that are totally original. But I think a lot of the style in literary fiction these days is to write something that's new and fresh and different. And this is new and fresh and different in the sense that it is traditional and done really, really, really well, which is not something you see every day. So I wanted to ask you, because you are unlike any guest we've ever had before, and that you are a master of finance, not that some of our other guests are not very successful, they are, but you are a professional master of finance. I guess it's probably a good idea to tell the listeners how we know each other, which is that Ken has been my father's best friend since long before I was born. My dad describes you when I used to ask him what you did, because I knew you weren't a filmmaker or a writer, which was the only thing I knew about growing up. He said that you were a master of the universe. (laughs)
0: Well, that's what they used to call people who did mergers and acquisitions, which was my specialty.
1: Would you say you're a banker?
0: I would say I'm a financier.
1: Like I said at the beginning, you know, this book has these sort of unsavory characters who are doing all sorts of things for money. Have you thought about in your career, like, why are people so obsessed with money?
0: If you don't have money, you're bartering for everything. You know, I'll trade you a cow for a bushel of corn. So money basically is essential to the way society is organized. Everybody seems to want more of it. I'm from New York where the local motto is too much ain't enough. So everybody wants money because it's the universal tool. It's a shape shifter. You can shift it into a villa in France or you can shift it into a nice place to live, good health care, blah, blah, blah. Everybody wants money. I mean, Wall Street is, of course, obsessed with it. And capitalism depends on growth. So everybody's trying to get more money and our society is organized that
1: way. I think everybody's thoughts are consumed with money for a greater portion of their lives. And maybe they would care to admit, especially artists, either you have it and you need to figure out what to do with it and how to manage it, or you don't have it and you need to figure out how to get it. After many decades of universe mastery, just kind of what your philosophies are on how you think about money, how you think about your job, how you think about the nature of the economy, because you have a bird's eye view of it that I don't think most people have.
0: Money is what's called fungible. This dollar in my left hand does the same thing as the dollar in my right hand. But money isn't really fungible in the sense it's not the same for everyone. So if you're just starting your career as an artist, you've got big money worries. The whole focal point of your life is getting money. Then if you get lucky and you make more money, that becomes less of a concern. Maybe someday you get up to be a really successful novelist or visual artist like Jeff Koons or something, and then all of a sudden you're running a big business. And the interplay between money and art is of great fascination to me. The way art has been commoditized I would say that people who are great writers, like David Mitchell, write because, not even because they want to, but because they have to. It's what you need to do when you get up in the morning. Whereas if you're in the unfortunate position of working for money, if that's what you have to do, it's not a very self-actualizing or uh, self-realizing way to relate to the world.
1: You've had success basically consistently through some really volatile markets, markets that have wiped me out, but I don't think they wiped you out. What are some lessons that you've learned from the last several years? I remember something you said to me when I was 18. And so this would have been 1998. And we were at dinner with my dad and you were heavily invested in a bunch of internet stuff because that was the dot-com boom. You took me aside. I had had a glass of wine and you might've had a glass of wine. And you said, Lucas, do you want to know what the secret is to the internet? And I said, what? He goes none of it works. (laughs) (laughs) You said none of it works, but if any of it starts to work, we're going to make a lot of money. You were right.
0: Yeah. One thing I know about finance, the markets have their yins and yangs. What goes up must come down. And the current moment feels like we're in for a correction at some point because we've had loose money for so long. And what I do these days is early stage venture. So, it's the highest risk end of the equity markets. Most of the companies that get started have a money jones in the sense that they don't get right to cash flow positive. So they have to keep going back to raise an A round, a B round, a C round, and they keep needing money, but they forget about the ins and gags. And so they just assume the capital markets will be there, and then they can't raise another round and they go out of business. And i lives through cycles like
1: that. I have two more questions about finance, and this is just because our listeners don't get to hear this stuff from someone as eminent as you, and they're going to really appreciate it. So how has banking and finance changed in your career? It must be wildly different from when you started, or are the principles the same and just the business is different?
0: Principles are the same. The business is different. I mean, technology has changed everything. When I first came to the street, there was still fixed commissions, so people could just Go golfing with rich friends and get an order and then put it in and go back to the golf course. Then the hired guns came. You know, the Japanese call them Ronins. They don't work for one local shogun. They wander around. They're hired guns. And that's what I was when I came to the street. Anybody who had a deal could hire. I would do deals in every sector of the economy airlines, pharmaceuticals, transportation, you name it. Today, the M&A specialists are mainly in silos, so they specialize in a given industry. And the trading happens much faster due to technology. Fractions of a second determine who wins that game. And there's so many other things going on that happen in the public doesn't necessarily notice, like repos will go through the roof, overnight borrowing by banks and so forth. So it's changed a lot. But the basic principle is know the rules, live within the rules, and try to be smarter than the next person.
1: Is there anything that you're really excited about that you're working on now that you can tell us about?
0: I just finished writing a novel that I'm very excited about and looking for an agent on. And I have a collection of short stories. I've published a lot of nonfiction over the years like a cover story for Time magazine and one for Foreign Affairs magazine, but I've never published any fiction. And I find there's something very godlike about writing fiction. Everything has to fit together in the way our world fits together and we just take it for granted. But when you're writing fiction, there's so many choices about what to emphasize, what to include, what to exclude, and you read differently. So when I come across a passage that is so evocative in Mitchell, I say, oh, that's beautiful. You don't know where it comes from, in a way. Stephen King, in his book about writing, talks about basically being the servant of the thought. You don't, in a way, write it. It writes you. You're listening. And you sit down there in front of a blank page, and you just get completely sucked in.
1: It's true. You start to see the work a little bit more that people have done. If you told my mom that you wanted to write a book, she would have told you this. The key is to just read a lot.
0: Well, it's important to read a lot and pick up other people's styles and how they handle the problems that you're thinking about. But I'm still very engaged in finance and finding that still to be a lot of fun.
1: Two things. So first of all, I'm going to ask you the last question I ask everyone, which is to recommend two books to our audience. No restrictions, just two books that you think they should read. And while you're thinking about that, we're going to have to have you back to read another book because this is super fun.
0: Well, I did love the Ferrante. I think it was five books. I read all five of them. I thought the voice was terrific. I love the work of Hiroki Murakami. I think his 1Q84 is terrific. And the first book he ever wrote that was translated into English was A Wild Sheep Chase, which is a great short read. And people think of magical realism as South American, but this is Japanese magical realism, and it's almost a category of its own. My mind always goes back to Heston, the Iron Will of Shushine Cats, which is a wonderful story about a Jewish gangster in the 60s. And it's surprisingly tied in later on in the book to things that were going on during that period.
1: Ken, thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk to you. It's great to see you after so many years. I'm a little jealous that you're in Puerto Rico, but you know, I'm in Los Angeles, so I'm not doing so bad.
0: I'm pleased to have done this with you and I look forward to seeing you the next time we're in LA, which I hope won't be more than a couple months.
1: My guest next week is Carrie Fountain, author of The Life, a book we talked about in the episode with Maggie Smith. We're going to be talking about Mark Wunderlich's God of Nothingness. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list, I'm going to send out a newsletter. You're a dangerous man, Ken, a well read banker.